Hi, this is Saka Brahman from the Orthoclips podcast series. And today I'm with Dr. Jeffrey Gum, who's an adult and pediatric spine surgeon at the Norton Leatherman Spine Center. And he's also assistant professor at the University of Louisville Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And today we're gonna be talking about why orthopedic trainees are not selecting the right job after training. Thanks, Dr. Gum, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Perfect. Let's get into it. So um, I had seen your um, investigation in uh, the AOS Now, I believe, recently, uh, obviously of uh, pertinence to our resident listeners, resident and fellow listeners. So what's the problem that your group identified? Like, um, you know, what was the perceived issue you know, or background situation that prompted your study and um, what your result, you know, did your results confirm that or not? Yeah, so great question. So it actually all started when I was finishing my fellowship about uh, six or seven years ago, looking at jobs. And what I realized very quickly is when I was sorting through contracts and uh, paperwork that uh, I had little to no business training with regards to what I was about to step into. You know, we I was entering a practice that I was pretty familiar with and um, there's some benefits from the hospital side to where we were hospital employees and and I wasn't running a true business, but I was still entering a business type environment that I had. I felt like I was not prepared at all. So I started discussions with our group and uh, reached out to a bunch of past fellows and and found that uh, for the most part, the the face-to-face discussion led me to believe that we were not doing a very good job training our fellows. And what was even more alarming that uh, two to four, you know, we take four to five fellows a year, but at least two, if not three of those fellows each year were switching jobs pretty quick. And so to me, those couple details pointed to the fact that we were not doing a good job preparing our trainees for their workforce. And um, so we, we decided to set up a survey or a study um, to look into that and try to dive a little deeper to, to see what the rationale behind that was. Okay. And um, what did you find? So we, you know, we surveyed, uh, we utilized the Academy uh, email list or database and we surveyed them. And as any other typical survey study, the, the response rate wasn't uh, super high, but we ultimately had about 350 respondents and they, um, they, they said that their rationale for choosing practice was location, practice type, and family proximity. And all of that makes sense. You know, if you talk to trainees or fellows, um, the stats that I'd heard prior to doing the study was the majority of them stay within about 100 to 150 mile radius of where they finish their training. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, we did find what, what we suspected that there was a pretty high rate of attrition or, or job switching. And we found a, at least 50% of those trainees switched jobs uh, in a kind of two to five year span after they took their job. So, you know, the overall arching theme here was, you know, orthopedic trainees for the most part have not failed that much in their life. You know, if you look at the application candidates that come through and interest in orthopedics, they, you know, the scores are through the roof, their grades are great, they're involved in everything, they're doing research, they're, 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 you know, top trainees or top students coming out of medical school, but yet 50% or more 
fail at picking the right job. And so that just didn't make sense to us. And so um, it, the reasons they cited for leaving were financial reasons and the practice was not advertised. And one of the flaws in a survey type study is it's hard to get some of the granularity that's uh, when you talk face to face. And so to me, when, you know, the study confirms what, uh, you know, kind of proves our hypothesis, but when you start to talk to fellows, which I do now on a, on a very regular basis about job selection, one thing that wasn't really captured in the study was people don't look ahead at the kind of five and 10 year plan or outlook. Instead, you know, by the time we finish training, a lot of us are in our 30s, if not later, and we've accumulated a massive amount of debt. And so that initial dollar figure on what that contract, that first contract is, and what those first couple of years, I feel like folks place too much emphasis on that. And and the other part of it, they don't understand the detriment to switching, right? I've had a couple of fellows over these uh, past four or five years where they're like, well, I'll just take this job that pays more and stick it out for a couple of years and switch. And the downfall to that, that they don't understand is the indirect cost of moving, moving their family or kids to a new school system, buying and selling a house. And even the referral base, you, you know, for you to be successful in practice, most of us know that you need some sort of referral base in the majority of settings. And, you know, to not put energy into that or marketing and then just scrap it and go somewhere else two years, there's a, there's a lot of indirect cost in that. And so we found a lot of interesting things out of the study, but it, it was not granular enough to tease out some of the wrong, wrong decision-making process with regards to choosing, uh, choosing that first job. Yeah, I guess in addition to those indirect costs, I think one of the things people don't think about and I understand the motivation I mean you have a lot of debts you really, you know you sort of wait you say yeah moving again is not great but you know I really gotta sort of make some money out of the gate to get under this mountain of debt uh, for instance yeah. and it's, um, you know a sacrifice sometimes people are willing to make I'll do this and then I'll move but there's another factor which is you know, sometimes if you start to make a couple you know you make one move that's one thing but if you kind of go into a position thinking like, all right, you know, I might have to move and then you do move and now you, you sort of, are, you know, maybe you move again. Now you've kind of been moving around and, and sometimes that can call into, you know, then when the next time you're now looking for a job, people start to call into question sometimes like, okay, is it the job? Is it the surgeon? You know, you start to wonder um, and even, um, I've even heard cases of medical boards having sometimes issues. Um, uh, yeah. That's not a major thing, but certainly I think when you're interviewing for a job and you're in your fourth job, people start to wonder, uh, is that yeah. a problem with you or a problem with the, with the job? So, you know, kind of already making that very first move right out the bat after two years already, you know, potentially heading yeah. that path. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I've, I've seen a few of the fellows that had all great intentions and, you know, as we know, going through this process and, and studying it, there's things that come up. And even if you spend your time and study it and pick the job based on the right decision, there's still things that are unforeseen. So, you know, to, to add multiple moves in that, you know, if we're interviewing somebody for a group and somebody's moved four times in three years, that's a massive red flag. So that's a really good point that, uh, that uh, uh, fits into all this really well. 
the, yeah. the other um the other part of it that again it's a little hard to tease out but because we uh, you know i give lectures on this and teach quite a bit a, a very important topic to me personally is the, the job landscape so if you look at our training pathway the majority of us end our training in, in some sort of an academic environment right and and that's just the nature of our training and so we understand the academic um setup right and and even if you're not truly interested in academics but you have some you know, maybe a little bit of interest. There's a lot of folks that are gravitating to those setups because that's what they've seen. That's what they're familiar with. And once they get into that role as an attending, they realize that, you know, research and a lot of that other time, that's almost like a hobby, right? Depending on your pace structure. And they realize when the, it's consuming a lot more of their time or family time and isn't something that, um, they they were truly passionate about to start with then they figure out academics isn't for them and so there, there there's a lot of our fellows that say they're interested in academics when they start they land at an academic job and about a year or two in they looking at themselves in the mirror and say you know i'm i'm interested in my friend that's you know in a more business um i, I hate to use savvy but you know more business-like environment and so that was another reason why we were seeing a lot of folks switch jobs pretty quickly yeah um, you know, what do you suggest as uh, the right way to go about it or maybe a solution to avoiding this uh, problem yeah. of not selecting the right job after training? So I, I think the, you know, the, the external eye, the easy thing is as well, we need to embed X, you know, we need to embed business training um, or business courses within residency. And we all know with, especially the implementation of work hour restrictions and things like that, that it's in a, at least in an orthopedic track of five years is jam packed already of, of, of didactics and surgical training. And we're trying to teach them how to operate as best they can and take care of patients that introducing a formal track for education is not realistic. I mean, there's not much time to squeeze more in. So you can do that. I think that augments the, the training and perspective that our trainees get. But the biggest thing that I've, that we found that I that I think is a solution is kind of breaking breaking down that barrier. You know, if that medical student asks the attending what they make for a living and what their salary is and how they picked a job, that's almost taboo, right? And similar to residents, not as much because they're they're closer from a training perspective and, and somewhat for fellows. But in my mind, breaking down that barrier and in making some of those questions and comments um, and discussions not taboo to where I'm open with my fellows of, you know, what contracts look like, what my first salary was, what my current salary is, and, and, and how I set up my practice and why I see certain types of pathology in patients. And so the, the first step, I think, is breaking down the barriers to that discussion for the business side of medicine. And, you know, when we do it now, when I have discussions with my fellows, they absorb, I mean, their eyes light up and they absorb it like a sponge. So that's the first step, I think. And then second, trying to introduce some sort of formal didactic session that's, you know, almost in the evening over cocktail and dinner to where it's a more, um, more of a discussion platform than a lecture. Okay. Um, so, can you give me an example? Maybe you can think of an example 
I don't know, you don't have to use names or practices or anything like that. Yeah. But maybe just give us give us a picture that somebody can relate to uh, one or two examples maybe of um, that you feel worked out and the trainee kind of made all the right priorities and took the right steps to avoid those pitfalls and, uh, you know, head down a path that avoided, you know, these problems. Yeah. So our, our fellowship at the uh, Leatherman Spine Center over the past, uh, really since I got interested in this, uh, I have another partner, uh, Mitch Campbell, who's, who's pretty passionate about the topic as well. We set up a formal didactic series to where once a month topics that are on how to evaluate jobs, how to, um, how to negotiate contracts, what to look for in the right job, um, how to how to position yourself good in in the application process, and so that that formal didactic session has spun into not just the the lectures, but it sparks conversation of the fellows, right? And we see right after the first one of the year that we do the first month they're here, they they're starting to pick the attendings' brains uh, in a lot more detail than what we saw prior to initiating that. So. I think that's a good start because, you know, it's an hour a month, uh, hour, hour and a half a month. And what it's done is, uh, to me, the fellows really critically evaluate it. The other thing is, is we see them sharing information with each other uh, about the job landscape a lot more. And so, you know, even somebody that's only five years in the practice, I understand the job landscape um, more than my partner that's been in the same group for 25 years, right? So I understand some of the business opportunities with surgery centers and uh, other ancillary type stuff, some, but that evolves so rapidly that even being five years distant from the job market, the fellows now are absorbing more of that. So we really create an environment to share what's out there and promote the fellows to critically think. And what we found is the fellows choosing jobs. So since we started to do this, the, that we're seeing one, if if not zero a year, um, uh, switch jobs. And so the I, I think that process of sounding it out with your peers, sounding out with your attendings, and, and, and to me, the part that I always preach to them is look at where people are at five and 10 years and what are your long-term goals. Do not look at that first year paycheck or second year paycheck because um, that, that's not a good reflection of if you're going to be happy in 20 years at that job or not. Okay, um, I guess last, last thing, any, um, any remaining tips or resources perhaps um, other than your good words of uh, advice and your, um, your article I saw written up? Any other resources you might want to point residents to um, that they could kind of you know, look up or pull up to, yeah. to help them out? Yeah, um, more, more so, this is more of kind of a word of mouth resource, but you know, it's at least in the spine world, we've found that industry partners are very helpful in this. Um, you know, like I said, it's hard to have a formal didactic session that gets embedded into a, a orthopedic residency program. And so the what I've really seen is there's been an uh, almost uh, uh, exponential uptick in the type of courses industry offers, right? So we've all been to cadaver courses. We've all been to courses where we learn how to improve on X technique, but there appears to be a lot more business oriented courses. And, you know, come my fourth year and chief year of, of orthopedic residency, those courses were the ones where, 
you know, the light bulb started to go off and I really needed to start to think about some of the business aspects. And so I would urge our, our trainees to, to utilize your industry partners to, to help with some of that selection process and some of the basic business uh, education, because I think it could be beneficial. Okay, great stuff. Um, I think that's about it for time. Um, I want to thank my guest again, Dr. Jeffrey Gum. Uh, we've had a discussion today talking about why orthopedic trainees are not selecting the right job after training. A lot of really useful information uh, for the residents and especially fellows out there. Um, Dr. Gum, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, and uh, happy to answer future questions if folks are interested in the topic. Thanks for the opportunity. Great, thanks. thanks.